Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 21. We'll begin in Genesis 21 this morning. I brought along with me this morning uh, my, my favorite book from when I was a kid. Okay? The Great Comic Book Heroes. Subtitle, The Origins and Early Adventures of the Classic Superheroes of the Comic Books in Glorious Color. Yeah, this, this is my favorite book. Read it cover to cover. Uh, a little while back, my son discovered this book. He read it cover to cover as well. And then he asked me, he said, Dad, who's your favorite superhero? Of course, I answered, Batman. <laughs> Batman's, I thought Batman's awesome because of all the inventions. The, just the really cool stuff that he could make. You know, I didn't want to overlook Spider-Man swinging in between the buildings. That's pretty cool. And of course, Superman's on the cover. You can't ignore Superman. He has super after all. And, and I really liked Flash. I thought, how many Olympic gold medals could you win if you were Flash? Run as fast as a bullet and catch it. Flash is really cool. I, I actually, I love the superheroes, and I, I wanted to be a superhero. I want to have superpowers. Just imagine what that was like. Or at least really cool adventures like a Batmobile or stuff like that. So I could live at, a, at another level, Right? The superheroes of the Bible are not like these people at all. Right? They're dramatically ordinary people. They are deeply flawed. They have incredible weaknesses. They fail, and the Bible records their failures. Uh, they're often really insecure. They don't have any superpowers, but they have faith. They don't even have perfect faith. They often have stumbling faith, but what they have is growing faith. And they become great people because they allow God to stretch and to grow their faith. This morning we're going to look again at Abraham, the father of our faith, certainly one of the greatest characters in the entire Bible. And we want to look at is how did he become great? It wasn't a smooth process, but, but what, him, what brought him to that point where we, we would say, uh, Abraham, a great man, the friend of God. I want you to begin with me in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, uh, first seven verses record the absolute best day in Abraham's life. I want to read beginning chapter 21 and verse 1. It says, The Lord then took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac, his son, was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have born to him a son in his old age. When Abraham was 100 and when Sarah was 90. They had a child, and of course they laughed, not just because Sarah had laughed previously when God said, you're going to bear a child, but now here it is, here's the child. And this child, Isaac, brought so much joy and fulfillment into their lives. In fact, this is what Abraham had been looking forward to and longing for his whole life. All of the, the promises that God had made to him rested on this child. Certainly, land would come later, and with the land, they would be able to bless others, but it all rested on having this child that seemed an impossible promise to fulfill. And so now all of Abraham's affection and love and hopes and dreams rest on this child. 
greatest day of Abraham's life. Throws a huge party. But then in the next chapter, it's about 15 years later, all of Abraham's hopes and dreams and expectations begin to come crashing down around him. Read with me chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, for most of you, this is going to be hard to even contemplate, but I grew up in the days before caller ID. We didn't actually even have an answering machine hooked to our rotary phone. We had fire. Right? We discovered fire and we had indoor plumbing. We, we did have a few modern conveniences, but we had no caller ID. Now, I'm a super fan of caller ID because caller ID gives me power. It gives me control. Uh, you know, I, I can look at it and it says 888. I know it's a solicitation. I don't want to pick that up. I hit decline. Or it's a number and there's no name attached to it and I'm not in really a mood to be surprised that day. I go, decline, right? Or it's a number and I see the name and I say, I know what's on the other end. Decline, right? <laughs> You know, and some of you are kind of looking at me condescending. You know you do this. You know you think before you hit accept, right? You do. There's some clause you just go, I, I don't want that call. When God calls, it's hard to hit decline, right? And, and why would Abraham decline God's call? Because every time God has called him up into this point, it's been great news. So God calls again and Abraham says, of course, God, here I am. Tell me more good things. Got more promises, more wonderful blessings you're going to pour out upon me. And, and you know what? It's not, it's not good news this time. It's a test. Chapter 22 opens like this. After these things, God tested Abraham. God tests his people. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters in Christ. God tests his children. Why? Because he has nothing better to do because he's kind of crabby and wants to see how we react when we're squeezed. He's, he's vindictive, sadistic. No, that, that's not who God is. Our God is a God of, of compassion. That word from compassion means that he feels it deeply. He aches when we ache. He grieves when we grieve. He sorrows when we sorrow. Our God is a God of compassion. But he tests us because there are things that he can do in testing that he can't accomplish any other way. There is a, there's a maturity, there's a greatness that God can produce in our lives that he cannot produce apart from testing. We must be tested. In particular, there are two things that God accomplishes through testing. First, testing shows our faith. Testing reveals what's going on inside of us. First Peter chapter 1, Peter wrote, this brings you great joy. What? What, Peter? What brings me great joy? The salvation, he says, that's ready to be revealed. That salvation that's waiting you, that's soon, heaven, when there will no longer be sorrows and tears and anguish and pain. You greatly rejoice in this, although you may have to suffer right now for a short time in various trials. Such trials show the proven character of your faith. To whom? To God? No, God already knows what's happening inside of you. Shows it to you, shows it to the people around you. And when you are squeezed, 
by life, your faith shows up. And one of the things that God wants to do through your life is to show you off. And in particular, God chooses people who are broken, who don't have superhuman characteristics, but have, have deep cracks and, and, and flaws and failures, insecurities. Those are exactly the kind of people that God chooses because then he can really show himself off through you. Beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, we have this treasure, that is the treasure of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. We have it in an earthen vessel, something that is broken and frail and fragile, so that the surpassing value may be of God and not of us. So that people can watch us being squeezed and crushed and broken, and they can say, wow, there must be a God. If you're a parent, you can easily understand this principle. You know, when, when our kids begin to, to grow up, the littlest thing they do, we, we want to show it off. Right, your child rolls over, you go, wow, come watch my, look at my kid roll over. Nobody's ever done this. Like, he rolls better than anyone rolls. She is the best roller. Watch her sit up. Watch him take a step. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And then they begin, you know, their crazy crayon art. And you're like, what is that? Is that a giraffe? No, daddy, it's a car. It's a, it's a beautiful car. And so what do you do? You display it, right? Right there on a refrigerator. I imagine God has this cosmic refrigerator door that he puts our, our little acts of faith up there to display those. Wow, isn't that amazing? Look at what my child accomplished. God longs to do that. He does that in front of the watching world so that they'll be pointed to him and to his glory. He does it where told in Job in front of the angels. Look at, look at what my servant did, that, that little step of faith, that act of faith. Let me show it off because I love my children. God allows us to go through trials and tribulations so that he can show our faith, so that he can demonstrate our faith. For us as well, so that he can show where maybe our faith needs work. There's a crack there that God needs to work on and so I'm going to put you through stress, through trial, to show you the weaknesses, to show off the strengths. God allows us to suffer because he wants to show us off. Second, God tests us to grow our faith. God can grow maturity in us in a way that cannot be accomplished any other way than through trials. We studied the book of James a couple of years ago. James begins his book and kind of sets the tone for the book in chapter one. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Really, James? Yeah, he says, count it all joy. Because if you have the proper perspective on a trial, you understand God is doing something amazing in you. He is making your life into a great life and he can only do it through a trial. So count that trial all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you want to become a truly, genuinely great person? That can only be accomplished through trials. Faith is it's, it's like a muscle. And if you do nothing with that muscle, it gets softer and weaker. I remember a time when I was going through some, some physical uh, illness and I was, I was in bed for several weeks. And when I got up at the end of those weeks, I was completely weak. I, I it was hard to walk. It was hard to lift things. In just a short period of time, my muscles had atrophied. So it is with faith. Faith must be tested if it's going to grow. Endurance is not learned easily. It's, it's a painful thing to learn how to endure. 
Earlier this morning, actually, Tim reminded me of a quote from A.W. Tozier. He said, Tozier said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It's a terrible quote, isn't it? It's a terrible reality. But when we realize that what we long for is, is to have a life that is truly, genuinely great in the sight of God, then as James says, we can embrace these trials and say, God, these are really a gift from you. Because you're working in me an endurance, a maturity, a completeness that you can't accomplish any other way. God tests his people to show us off, to grow us up, to make us mature. Let's look specifically at this trial that Abraham went through. I want to make a few observations about this trial. First, Abraham's testing or trial was uh, unexpected. Uh, Abraham is actually coming off what I would describe as a, a spiritual high. Things have been going really well. Things didn't always go really well in Abraham's life, right? Uh, previously, he had, had doubts and fears so deep that he gave his wife to Pharaoh and and later he gave in to Sarah, his wife, and said, sure, Hagar sounds like a great plan, and that didn't work out well at all. Later again, he gave Sarah away to Abimelech, another king in the local region. But now things are going really well. Abraham's living well, he's living wisely, and his life is having an impact on the people around him. Chapter 21 and verse 22. It says, now it came about at that time that Abimelech, a different Abimelech, and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do obviously. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me into the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham, obviously your God is greater than my God. Let's make a commitment to one another. Abraham is becoming a blessing to those around him. And so Abraham worships, verse 33 of chapter 21. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Remember, to call upon the name of the Lord means that he built an altar, he made sacrifices, and he worshiped, and he preached. He proclaimed, this is God. God is the everlasting God. God is the only one who is eternal. God is not like your gods. God is not regional. He's not confined. I don't need to fear when I go into Egypt or fear when I travel throughout any land because my God is the only true God, the everlasting God. Abraham is worshiping. Abraham is victorious. Abraham is having an influence on the people around him. He's at a spiritual high and bam, he gets hit. Isn't that how testing and trial often comes in your life? <laughs> You're not expecting it at all. In fact, sometimes we're at such a great place spiritually that we feel like perhaps we're immune to that next trial. And Abraham gets hit. His trial is unexpected. His trial is solitary. Verse 2, it says, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. This is the same phrase that is used in chapter 12, verse 1. It is literally, go to yourself or go by yourself. Abraham, this is between you and me. When you're going through a trial, hopefully you have people around you to love you and help you walk through it, but ultimately, the trial is between you and God. Will you trust God? Will you turn to God? Will you believe that God is good and that he's powerful? 
We get bitter and angry. You doubt what in the world could God possibly be doing? Will you fear? Will you run? Will you escape to Egypt? Will you try to come up with your own plan? Or will you learn to worship more deeply? Ultimately, that's between you and God. No one can rescue you from that trial. No one can make that decision in that moment for you. This trial is solitary. Third, the trial has a gentleness about it in God's dealings with his servant Abraham. Verse 2 says, in my translation, take now your son. That should be translated uh, literally take please or take I beg you. This exact grammar occurs only five times in the entire Old Testament where God is addressing a person. And each time that God uses this exact vocabulary and he is addressing a person, he is calling that person to do something that seems completely unreasonable and will stretch their faith to the very core of their being. And God says, take, please. God is, in a sense, acknowledging how incredibly difficult it is to obey him at this point. Take, I beg you, take, please, your only son, your son, the one you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him. I find that just amazing. The God of the universe comes to Abraham with a trial and says, please, what a compassionate God. Now, that's not usually how I address my kids when I want them to do something. I don't, I don't, I don't say please. I'm, I'm the king. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy who runs. I bought the house. Clean the house. Clean your room. You know, I, the God of the universe, creator of the universe, comes to Abraham. He says, please, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him. The trial seems illogical. It seems unnatural. Love of a parent for a child is inexplicable. Or when each of our children were born, there's something that just emerged in my heart that I'd never felt before. If, if, you're, if you're a child and you haven't had children yet, just, just trust us, parents. You're going to feel something that you can't describe it. You can't explain it. You didn't know it was in you. There is such a deep love that naturally comes forth, parent for the child. And because of that love, we long to protect our children. To harm our children, is, it's almost inconceivable. How unnatural is this? Especially for Abraham. This is the son on whom all of God's promises rest. God, what are, what are you thinking exactly? You promised me to have descendants as many as the stars of the heavens. And if he dies, how, how could that possibly occur? What Abraham's being asked to do is, is not something immoral. In his worldview, it's not like the pagan gods that were unpredictable and jealous and they would get angry and sometimes they would demand a human sacrifice in the minds of their worshipers to appease their anger or to bribe them to do something good for the worshiper. That's not what God is calling on here. What God is calling on on from Abraham is that Abraham would give his best, that Abraham would give to God what he loved the most firstborn. There's a principle in worship that emerges all the way at the very beginning of Genesis, and that is that God deserves our best. God deserves our all. The first fruit of the land, the firstborn that comes forth from man and beast. We're told in Exodus chapter 13, sanctify me, sanctify to me, the Lord says, every firstborn, the first 
offspring of every womb of the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. Give me your first. Give me your best. Give me your all because I'm worthy. God is reaching down into the very core of Abraham's heart and soul and he's saying, give me everything. That's worship. Abraham, don't hold back anything from me. Give me your most precious possession because then I'll know that you were not willing to hold anything back. And I want you to take that precious possession and make it a burnt offering. The burnt offering was the best that you possessed. And when you made a burnt offering, nothing was left over. Okay? The entire sacrifice was consumed. How will Abraham respond? Verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. And took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. Uh, Abraham obeyed. This is radical obedience. It's, it's, an, it's amazing. Abraham holds nothing back. Abraham becomes for us a paradigm for perfect obedience in the face of trial. Four characteristics or qualities of his obedience that I want to point out. First, his obedience was immediate. Notice what it says in verse 3. It says, Abraham arose early. I would have hit snooze. (laughs) We'll get to that later in the day. How about next week? Just like that. Abraham obeyed immediately. No holding back. Second, his obedience was unwavering. In verses 1 through 5, the story really moves pretty rapidly. God shows up. He says to Abraham, go. Abraham gets up and he goes. And they they go and they get there. They get right to the edge. And then in verse 6, the narrative just slows way down. And the author begins to point out little details. So that you, in a sense, really are forced to enter into the agony of Abraham's soul. Verse 6, it says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there. Abraham arranged the wood there, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. See how it slows down? Isaac says to his dad, behold, which is like, dad, 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 I see wood and you've, you've got fire and your knife. Where's the offering? Remember, Isaac is now uh, between 13 and 17. He's probably 15 years old. Abraham is 115 years old. Isaac is demonstrating faith as well, isn't he? 15-year-old young man and 115-year-old dad. Man, he just throws him down. There's no, you know, if, if Isaac says no, it's not going to happen. Isaac allows himself to be bound. Isaac lays on the altar. 
This is, this is unwavering faith. For three days, they've been walking together. For three days, Abraham had opportunity to rationalize, to come up with a way out of this, to turn back, to delay. Three nights, he's laying asleep. He's looking up. He's seeing the stars in the heavens. He's being reminded of the promises that he's going to have descendants as the stars of the heavens. And yet he does not halt. He does not waver. He does not hesitate. He just keeps moving forward. Third, his obedience was in hope. Verse 5 is truly a beautiful verse. It says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and we will return. That's faith. The writer of the Hebrews actually gives us some insight into what's going on in Abraham's mind. Chapter 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He had received the promises, yet he was ready to offer up his only son. God had told him, through Isaac, descendants will carry on your name. And he reasoned like this, that God could even raise him from the dead. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. You know, we've, we've actually, we've, I've never seen a resurrection, personally. I've heard about resurrections. I've read about them in the Bible. Abraham had never even heard of a resurrection. And yet he reasons to himself, God made promises and God is always faithful to make his promises. He promised me descendants through this son. This son cannot bring about descendants if he's dead. God therefore must make him alive after I kill him and burn him on an altar? Okay, God, that's going to take a lot of faith. Fourth characteristic, his obedience was complete. He couldn't sacrifice his son halfway. When he put his son on the altar and he raised the knife, he was giving everything. Because he didn't have anything better to give. He, was, he didn't care anymore about camels and donkeys and gold and silver. He would have gladly given away all of those other earthly possessions to save his son. When he gave his son, he was giving the absolute best that he had to offer He was demonstrating to God. He was demonstrating to everyone else who would hear of this story that he loved God most, that he trusted God more than anything in life. God was the center of his life. Is there anything in your life that you say, I can give God part, but not all? Maybe, no, I can't give God that, but I can give him that. To become truly, truly great people, what God does is he reaches into our lives and he yanks out everything. He says, will you give me everything? Will you give me your best? Will you give me your all? And we become great men and women of faith. We become great worshipers when we give away everything to God. And we don't give it all away. We stay small. And so God brings testing, he brings trial into our lives to squeeze out those last remnants of things that we say, no, I have to have that to be happy. I have to have that to be whole. I have to have that to be satisfied. I have to have that to feel safe and secure. I can give you everything else, God, but not that. And so God says, no, that's what I want then. (laughs) I'll take that. And he squeezes. Great obedience receives perfect provision. Abraham lays it all on the altar. Abraham lifts up his knife to slay his son. Read with me again, verse 10. It says, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And Abraham didn't decline. He said, okay, now God, how about some, how about some good news? And he said, here I am. And God said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. His only son, the son whom he loved, Isaac. Just the right moment in time, God intervened. You know, I read this story and I think to myself, how, how did Abraham do it? You know, how did he have the strength to chop the wood and to load his donkey and to go three days and not turn back? How do you have the strength to walk up that hill and, and gather rocks and build an altar? How do you have the strength to bind his son? How could, he, how could he do it? How could he be looking in his son's eyes as he laid him on the altar and raised his knife? How could he do it? Did Abraham say to himself, I can do it. I'm tough. I'm Abraham. I've got promises. I've got a covenant. I can do it. I can walk up the hill. I can make it. I can, I can, I can do it. No, no, Abraham didn't pull himself up by his bootstraps. God, God carried Abraham. If you, have, if you have suffered deeply, if you have been tried and tested deeply, then you know what I'm talking about. You know those, those times where it's God who pulls you out of bed. It's God who lets you put one foot in front of the other. It's God who allows you to continue walking and moving and choosing and making decisions when you realize I have nothing left. I have no strength left. See, ultimately this story is not just about Abraham. It's about Abraham's God. God makes this story dramatic because right at that moment when Abraham most needs intervention, God steps in in just the way that Abraham needs. And God provides for Abraham. When Abraham wanted he probably would have liked to hear it like right as he loaded the donkey and started out of camp. Oh, just kidding, Abraham. Right? He would have preferred timing that was a little sooner. He might have preferred, preferred a, a method that was a little bit different. But what he most needed, God provided just at the right time. And for us, it may be that the timing is not what we want, but it seems that God's waiting and waiting and waiting. And it may be, it seems like it's just at the last minute, or you know what, it may be that God gives us what we most need. And ultimately, as we're suffering and struggling, he delivers us into eternity and gives us life forever. We didn't get what we thought we most needed in this life, but we do have it forever. Abraham learned something about God, that God is a God who provides just what he needs. Notice two things. First, God provides for himself. Verse 8 of chapter 22. Isaac says, Dad, I, I see the fire, I see the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham says, Isaac, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is what God is asking, I can't do. I I can't make this provision. God must provide for himself. Second, God provides for himself and for Abraham a substitute. Verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him, What he hadn't seen before, there's a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son as a substitute. And this moment, this event becomes the picture throughout the entire Bible for what God will do for us. 
The, the, the most dramatic and the most powerful, the most beautiful story of God's own sacrifice, providing a substitute for our sins in our place because the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die for our own sins. And yet God says, no, let me provide a substitute for your sins. That's the gospel message. First Peter chapter two, he himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus did not hang on the cross for a single sin of his own. When he's hanging on the cross, is perfectly innocent, just, righteous man bearing our sins. He is a substitute in our place. Nothing that we can do to earn that or to deserve that. That's why the gospel must be free. We receive the substitute offering of Jesus in our place when we simply believe and say, God, thank you for taking me off of the altar and putting Jesus in my place. 1 Peter chapter 1, you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The substitute that God provided for himself to pay for your sins in your place was absolutely and utterly perfect. Perfect lamb, unblemished, no stain, no spot, no defect, God's best. The only adequate sacrifice to pay for all of the sins of all people for all time was the perfect sacrifice of God's son. So as Paul says in Romans chapter eight, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you you see Paul's point? Paul's saying, if God gave his best, he gave his only begotten son, then there's really nothing else that's precious to him. He gave all, he gave his best. Can you imagine that there's anything less that he would withhold from us? No, no. And is there anything that God asks from you that he isn't willing to give himself? Does God ask you to give more than he's willing to give? No, God gives more. You cannot outgive God because God gave what was most valuable in the entire universe, the life of his own son, Jesus Christ. Edmund Clowney makes this beautiful observation. He says, when the ultimate beloved child cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The father paid the price in his silence. There was no one to hold back the hand of God in the slaying of his own son. God God held Abraham's hand back. He said, Abraham, Abraham, no, I'm not going to have you follow through. It It was a test. But there's no other father to hold back God's hand. And so God, God went through. God gave more. When his son cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one intervened. And God gave his son. What a story, huh? What a story Abraham had to tell. I've often wondered, you think uh, Abraham told Sarah ahead of time what he was about to do? (laughs) You know, I, I don't know everything about marriage. I've only, it's about 19 years we've been married in March. I know Abraham didn't tell his wife. There's no, he did not, there's no way. She would have like broken his kneecaps or, or, you know, killed his donkey or, you know, zipped up the tent. (laughs) Stay away from my son. I also wonder what was the conversation like when he got home? Isaac, Abraham, welcome back. How was your trip? 
I just imagine Abraham and Isaac looking at each other. Abraham says, you know, you might want to wait outside. Your mom and I need it. We need to talk about some stuff. I can imagine Sarah saying, I'm so glad you didn't tell me. Why didn't you tell me? Wow. Before Abraham went home and he wrapped everything up with his wife and his family, he needed to finish his business with God. Verse 14, chapter 22. It says, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Or or literally, it says, uh, in the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. What Abraham is saying is, God saw, but I didn't see. God knew all along because God knows everything. God sees everything. God brought me into this trial, but he knew, he saw. And in the mount of the Lord, as I saw God face to face, as I gave God all, then I saw. And what was just faith became sight. Because God is great and God is is good. And Abraham worshipped again. Abraham proclaimed the name of the Lord. Abraham told the story. And others told the story and they learned something new and fresh about God. When you meet with God, God provides. When you turn over all that God is commanding from you, God provides. You know where Mount Moriah is? Which Mount Moriah is um, a very specific place in Israel. It's a very important place. It's a place where when uh, David had done the census and he was told not to, the angel of the Lord began to have a plague sweep throughout Israel. And so David can came face to face with the angel of the Lord on Mount Moriah. He purchased this plot of land. It was a threshing floor. He bought the threshing floor. He slaughtered the oxen there. He, he made the, the yoke into uh, wood for an offering. He burnt an offering up, a whole burnt offering. He gave something to God and the plague was stopped. And then later, David, who had wanted to build the temple, wasn't allowed to because he was a man of, of bloodshed. And so his son Solomon was able to build a temple on Mount Moriah. This is where the temple was. This is the temple mount. It's the same place where God's only son would be rejected and condemned to death. The name is kind of hard to translate. It probably means something like the place belonging to God or the place where one meets with God. This is God's place. And when you come to God's place and you give God all, God provides. God provides. So, For us, is there anything that we are holding back? Are there little corners of our lives that maybe we've said, you you can have all but not this? Small corners or or big corners. Maybe it's your children that you need to say, God, they belong to you. Maybe it's job or career or relationship. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's forgiveness that you need to grant. Maybe something that God's been tweaking on for a long time. Maybe he's just starting to put his finger on it this morning. Worship of God is, is like a burnt offering. It's, it's your best. It's your all. This is the pathway through which we become great men and women of faith. And we say, God, everything belongs to you. So we close. I'd like for us to take a few moments, just silently go before the Lord and ask God's spirit, give God's spirit permission to... Uh, probe anywhere and everywhere in your heart 
and point out anything that you may be holding back. Let's just take a few moments silently before the Lord and give God access to our hearts and then we'll close. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge it it can be a frightening thing for us at times to um, allow you access into our hearts. To offer to relinquish all to you. Don't know what you may step in and take. I pray, Father, that you would give us courage, boldness. I pray, Father, that you'd give us trust in you. That all that we need, all all, all that we, we must have, you are the God who provides. You're the God who sees. You see what we don't see. Pray that you would give us ever-growing faith as you stretch us. At times where we feel like we might break, we're being crushed, that we would trust you. We would become men and women who worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, I thank you for demonstrating to us your willingness to give all to us by sending your son, Jesus. I pray, Father, our hearts and minds throughout the week would meditate upon him we would be encouraged to give back to you all that we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.